Hi, this is Paul. It is time to get into the Rest is History podcast on Jesus Christ. Now, Glenn Scrivener, that wily Aussie living in the UK, beat me to it. Not only did he did he lined up Dr. Peter Williams to to get into the uh, modern history, physical history questions, but then he went ahead and did his own reaction video to it. And um, all you have to do is search Glenn Scribner, even if you spell his name wrong like I did. <laughs> Rest is history, Jesus, and uh, you can and you can you can pull them up. And I'll, I'll if I remember, I'll put them below. And if I don't, I also noticed when I searched this that now the Rest is History podcast is on YouTube as well. Woohoo! So if you don't like a podcast app and you're just all into um, I'll enter YouTube. You can listen to them on YouTube as well. I don't know if they have ads, so I'll be using. I am a member of the Rest is History Club, which I pay for with my own dollars converted into English pounds. Um, and I did that last year, and I will happily re-up for another year because, as Glenn Scrivener said, it is my favorite podcast. I love listening to these guys, and it's not just because I love history. It's also because of their relationship, how they are with each other, and they're just, they're just so much fun to listen to. But this whole question of how to deal with Jesus, and of course, anybody who watches my Rough Draft for Sunday knows that there probably isn't a bigger Tom Holland fan than me. Um, because I put his, uh, I put the cover of his book Dominion on in just about every sermon that I that I preach. We have to get into his treatment of Jesus and how this works. I've touched on this because this also gets into the whole Jordan Peterson, Peugeot, Douglas Murray, Cosmic Skeptic, that whole conversation. It's the whole question about how the Bible relates to history and how the Bible relates to psychology and how the Bible relates to humanity. And we have to, we just really have to get into this whole thing. Now, when I was planning this video, I thought, well, I can do my little drawings on my pad like you see me do for the Sunday school class, but that's usually an unintelligible. And I've also started to note that being the lazy YouTuber I am, I don't like put little chapters in my videos, but if I put words on PowerPoint and those are in my videos, the YouTube AI machine learning will actually go through my videos, read them. This is pretty incredible. It reads the screen in my videos. And if, I, if you can find these on my church videos, by the way, we're updating the church website, getting more and more of the sermons from, so if you like the rough draft and you want to check the final product, it'll be a little bit easier to on the church website on the Livingstones, livingstonescrc.com. And I've got actually Pete, those of you who watch Sunday morning, Pete is, uh, Pete's now also my bulletin secretary. Um, Marshall, Marshall turned 86 and decided to give up the job. And I wanted a bulletin secretary that could do some work online too and keep the website up to date. So hopefully the website will be in better shape. Anyway, after, now that I've distracted myself, I started thinking about how to go about this. And it's like, ah, shucks, I should just do some PowerPoint. Because we need to talk about history and what this word means and the evolution of the word history, because that is actually so foundational in having any good conversation about the relationship between the Bible and history. First thing I want to talk a little bit about is story, narrative, and fiction, those three words. Story is sort of the most basic level of the word. I went to the store and unexpectedly found my daughter and her boyfriend there. That's a story. It's about something that happened. It's how human beings talk 
about all sorts of things, how they talk about their experience. That's a story. Narrative, and, and you got to watch the English language because it's very flexible in this. Um, narrative can sometimes be an abstracted story or abstracted stories. It's often used as a technical term, um, or it can just mean another story. Uh, if you if you were the witness to an accident and the police asked you, they would write the narrative. Basically, they're writing your story. Now, stories are concrete events. Uh, Mark uh, Lefevre has a good video on this um, on, in his channel, Navigating Patterns. There you go, Mark. I gave you a plug in my main video. Now... Um, he says, I don't know, Mark, would you rather have me plug your channel in my main video or actually watch your channel more? You can let me know that. So and it's, it's a fine channel. It's just I don't know why I watch what I watch. It's all my salience hierarchies. Um, so story can be usually has concrete events. So there's the store. There's my daughter. There's her boyfriend. There's me going to it. There's all this physicalness in the story. Sometimes we make up stories, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, where it's it's fictitious in that everybody understands in the telling of the story that there are no physical correspondence necessary as such. And See, it's even difficult to talk about because these ideas have so embedded into us. So when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, we call it a parable. It's a story in that there's a man, he has two sons, one son asks for his inheritance, yada, yada, yada. And it's more concrete, but it's not really concrete in that it's not pointing to physical people it might be abstracted from other stories, like the story I told in my video, in this video that I entitled, with this horrible title, Relevance Realization of the Historical Physical Correlation Level in the Meaning Stack. Okay, In that video, I used a story that I told in Sunday school about a, an old man who's got some death anxiety, and he goes to church, and he starts going to church regularly, and he starts to clean up his life, and I told that within the context of Romans chapter 5. So story, narrative, and fiction. Fiction is a story that doesn't purport to have physical correspondence unless you think about it in the Jordan Peterson way. And we'll get at that as my little PowerPoint continues to work its way through. Now, myth is a story, physical or otherwise, that provides a worldview within which people can live. It affords perspectival knowledge, procedural knowledge, participatory knowledge, question about propositional knowledge in terms of physical physicalist correspondence is a little bit more up in the air. And so... Um, there can be, well, the American Revolution can get very mythological. It doesn't mean there wasn't an American Revolution. George Washington can be very mythological. Uh, George Washington and the cherry tree. Did George Washington ever, ever have a cherry tree? Could have been. Is that story mythology very well? And what do we mean by that? And again, it's got two meanings. Sometimes we say mythology has been a story that is purely fictitious, doesn't necessarily purport or assert physical correspondence. But this, the story is one within which to live. And again, these three Ps, 
the perspectival, the participatory, the procedural are all part of myth. Myths are stories that we look to live within. Uh, Star Wars, for many people, is kind of a myth. Lord of the Rings is kind of a myth. Harry Potter is kind of a myth. That's why people dress up like Harry Potter. They buy their little kids little wands for Christmas. They watch the movies. They have they watch the movies together. It's it's a myth. Tolkien arguably wrote uh, Lord of the Rings as sort of a myth for the UK. Um, in some ways, so it's told from a perspective, though. And, and that's important to remember because perspectives are always, of course, subject to bias because perspective is, is almost synonymous with bias. It's from this point of view, this is how it looks. That's the story. And then obviously from other points of view, it looks differently. It's pretty much the definition of both bias and perspective. Jordan Peterson's conversation with Douglas Murray and Jonathan Peugeot, which Cosmic Skeptic went at. This is this gets into fiction, and you can see why Peugeot squirmed, and we'll get into that a little bit later, because the Bible is definitely mythological. It's a story within which we will live perspectively, procedurally, particip participatorily, but it's also a story which has propositional claims. And when... Um, it, it was just so annoying when the cosmic septic, did the Bible really happen? Oh, you're telling me that, you're telling me that Peter and Jesus and David and Solomon, um, and the apostle Paul, these are all fictitious. They never lived. No, you need to have much more nuance. You need to, and I'm going to make an argument to here. You need to understand the retconning fork that happened in our understanding of history if you want to talk with any kind of knowledge about the relationship between the Bible and what we understand to be modern history. And if you don't understand how these different terms are relating to one another, you're going to get tripped up in all sorts of ways that I have been watching people get tripped up in this for a very long time. And the rest is history, guys, get tripped up in this too. So sometimes, and this is so when Jordan Peterson talks about the fact that with fiction, let's say Dostoevsky, sometimes it can be more true than, let's say, a story which is purporting to assert propositional physicalist elements because what this abstracted narrative what this story let what the story affords is a participatory knowledge that individual stories in and of themselves might not afford so jordan peterson calls that a fiction i think actually a better word would be myth it's an abstraction of common patterns and we abstract it actually in order so that we can further concretize it in the future. A morality story is basically all about that. It's a morality tale. And Aesop's fables are great, are great examples of that. These are stories that are sort of abstracted from patterns. And the intention is that we can see the patterns grow in wisdom, and this will inform 
our participatory, our procedural, our perspectival, and our propositional knowledge and action in the world. That is the point of Jordan Peterson's point. And it's just absolutely pedantic to say, oh, he, he sees basically God number one. So he believes God is a character and a fiction. Therefore, he's an atheist. Well, actually, in some ways, that assertion is more knowledgeable than cosmic skeptic seems to want to say it is because in fact when jordan peterson says that these people are uh, that atheists are in some ways christian that's sort of his point a key thing to understand in this story is what happens in basically the secularization of christianity what happens in the 19th century it begins as an effort to save Christianity from Darwin, Marx, Freud, is that Christianity is secularized. And sometimes it's said it's demythologized. And that's not actually a bad way of phrasing it, except that it's demythologized on the surface so that it can maintain, it can be maintained as a myth underneath the surface. And it's sort of that direction that Tom Holland is really pointing out. So you can read a lot of you can read about this in a lot of the works of George Marsden. So the Soul of the American University is one of the larger publications. This is another one, the secularization of the academy. I've read the the first page of this on a on a podcast for someone else. Marsden, and you can see this with Lewis, I, I remember the first time I heard that C.S. Lewis, after the First World War, when he was beginning his career as an Oxford Don, um, when he was beginning his career as an Oxford Don, got involved in, even though he had some background in philosophy, got involved in the development of their new English department. And I thought to myself, why on earth would the English department be new in the early parts of the 20th century. The English language has been around a long time. Oxford University has been around a long time. Why weren't they studying English before that? And, and it wasn't until reading Marsden and sort of piecing these things together that I realized that in many ways, the liberal arts evolved to replace the place of theology at the university. And what Marsden does, especially in The Soul of the American University, is write the history of how Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, many of the set this this history that I pointed to in in the video I released today. Aaron Wren's Three Worlds of Evangelicalism and the Winsome Wars. The story of of how secularization really got going in the West is a story of sort of how Christianity gets sort of sublimated within secularity and and how again this is this is part of Tom Tom Holland's thesis how how Christianity is just always lurking beneath secularity secularity is is built upon Christianity and as secularity tries to sort of keep moving itself away from its foundation it gets increasingly unstable and so liberal arts came to displace theology as the queen of the sciences. And liberal arts, of course, um, and, and theologians scientized biblical study and theology in the modern period. And I've talked about that a little bit more. English studies, followed by other humanities, um, developed late 
um, as precisely what Jordan Peter Tustin talks about when he talks about fiction. So in other words, now many other stories begin to enter the canon. And, and of course, many classical texts, Plato, Aristotle, uh, Renaissance text, um, the consolation of um, philosophy, uh, the Divine Comedy, many of these classical texts, but increasingly now what you see in many universities is sort of the foregoing of these classical texts and all of these new texts. And that's where you get critical theory and, and all, all sorts of this stuff. And this, this then obviously be, replaces and sort of becomes the religious layer of the university. And that's, that's, not, um, that's not so much in question for, for many of you listening to this. And this is why, in many ways, the cosmic skeptic is being either pedantic or obtuse with respect to these things, because it should be the most obvious thing that humanity studies are myth-making. That's what they are doing. Now, they say, no, but we're corresponding to history. And the reason they're doing that is because they, too, are downstream from the Bible, because the Bible was, in many ways, the original foundational mixture of myth and history or mythical history or as C.S. Lewis said you know the history history made true or the, the true myth Christianity did that and so in many ways the humanities are just sort of following suit now if you if you're getting a degree in biblical studies or something like that you'll hear the term Hebrew narrative and again, remember what I said about the definitions of words, about narrative. These are Hebrew stories. You have real characters like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Isaac and Jacob, and and they're and they're true to life. And and you can you can read. I can't find the book right now. There's oh, Edward Said was 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 comparing Homer to. Uh, to the Bible and looking at looking at and looking at how the Bible shapes narrative, how the Bible does this weaving in of myth and history, and and I think again this is this is part of the reason why the Peterson biblical series is so foundational and so powerful in terms of what he what he did. Now narrative is sort of technical jargon, but it's myth in that it is a story presented as a pattern that is designed to serve mythological purposes. That's basically the what Hebrew narrative does for the world and it keeps doing it over and over generation after generation. To if you if you really want to get rid of Christian, if you really want to get rid of Christian influence in the culture, you're going to have to get rid of the Bible because the Bible just keeps doing this. And, and in that sense, you know, the, the Bible is the word of God. Now we're going to talk about that when we dive into the, the rest is history, but because um, well, anyway, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Now, now, I often make the comparison of genetics and epigenetics. So the Bible, like genetics, is a text, but especially after listening to Michael Levin and understanding that genes are only a tiny little bit of the story. There's another author that I'm going to bring into this because, well, 
we'll we'll get to him when we get to him because once I bring him in all all kinds of other things are going to let loose. But one of my favorite projects that Jonathan Peugeot is working on is his project with with um with Richard Rowland. I know a Randy Rowland, that's why Randy was on my tongue. Richard Rowland called Universal History. Now one of the early slides called it Mythical History and that's perhaps a better name or a more accurate name because Basically, when you read the Bible, you implicitly, automatically form in your mind a, a, a layer between the Bible and you. And so the whole purpose of the Jordan Peterson Biblical Series is the formation of that layer. And in a video that I did not too long ago, entitled, another one of my great titles, why the Jordan-Peterson Biblical Earthquake, Sedimentary Collective Biblical, Biblical Relevance Realization. This is just astounding. I did get, it's a, again, these are, these are the kinds of videos that are just sort of at the tip of my tongue that I'm, I'm trying to get out there. But so you have the Bible. And so what Jordan-Peterson is doing with his Exodus seminar and what he did with his, his biblical series is he sort of adds this other epigenetic layer on top of it that basically afforded a lot of other people to now connect with the Bible. That's pretty much what he did. Um, for a myth to work, people have to have a psychological fit, um, have to psychologically fit their way into the story. And that's pretty much what Jordan Peterson did in sort of this, this biblical renaissance that is happening around him. Now, this is usually done with an added layer of, of myth. And, and you can hear this in the Exodus seminar. You can hear this in the, the first, the Genesis part of the biblical series. There, there's all these ways that when you think about when you think about how, so I love going to, well, maybe I'll pull up a picture of that too. So I love to travel and when I travel, I love to take pictures and one of my favorite places to go is Yosemite National Park and my favorite time to go to Yosemite National Park is in winter. It's just absolutely glorious and it is not full, full, full of tourists and people. Now, now granite is very stable and it's very hard, but Trees, as you can see, will grow on the granite. Well, how does it grow? Well, it needs sort of a layer of soil, and it's sedimentary, basically. And and actually, there's a there's a symbiotic relationship between plants and decay and the sedimentary layers that eventually put soil onto this rock, and then the tree roots will grow then and exploit cracks in the crock in the rock and extract of course the rock will sort of become a barrier for water and you'll have water and moisture and dirt and sediment and eventually you can have little forests growing up on these mammoth granite rocks well in, in a lot of ways what's happening with the the biblical series is is that sort of sedimentation and people can sort of people are sort of the plants they come in there and they can now they can get roots in and all of the stories, all of the application, all of the, well, I'm talking psychologically because again, as Aiden, as Eamon said, I mean, psychology to the West is as Islam is to the Middle East. And that was one of, that was one of Eamon's um, counselors and I believe when he was in seminary. So 
So this is what's happening in this epigenetic sedimentary layer is that now people can begin to put down roots into this text which doesn't change and the granite of the Bible, what does Jesus say about the Bible? Um, my word, basically, you know, the, the, the text the text remains. So the Bible is like the granite and the, the sedimentary, the, the dirt and the, the soil sort of become the epigenetic layer and then plants and can grow on it and you can have trees and plants and deer and bear and you can have an entire ecosystem where before you just sort of had bare rock. And that's, a, that's, that's sort of the living aspect of how we are dealing with a fixed text. So again, the text is like granite. You have the sedimentary layers and then the, the trees grow from them. Now, and, and so then this becomes mythical history or universal history because, you know, everyone, you know, th this is how it works. And so here's Jonathan Peugeot's recent conversation with Richard Roland. Roland's been busy writing a book and, and they talk, basically they talk about the connection. They talk about the connection between Anglo-Saxon literature and ancient Near East literature. They have this fourth fourth son of Noah, the flood and new beginnings. And again, part of what happened is that modernist history sort of acted like a neutron bomb against universal history or mythical history because it held a standard that demanded, well, we're going to need proof of this fourth son of Noah. And by the way, we're going to need proof of Noah. And well, well, none of this worked that way. Um, let me see if I can find, I can find exactly where I want to jump in. And and uh, if people don't remember, in the Apocalypse of Pseudomethodius, the role that he has is that he goes off far to the east, which seems like the wrong direction for the stuff we're going to be talking about today. Mm. But he goes... Now, now we're going to get into the fourth son of Noah. And of course, this is sort of where Protestantism begins to bump into this because Protestants will say, hey, wait a minute, there's no fourth son of Noah. Um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, those are the sons of Noah. But they push a Protestant, you might say, well, you know if you read those genealogies carefully, and they had many other sons and daughters, and they had many other sons and daughters. And a book that I want to get into, maybe I'll give you a little teaser, the Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. So we have universal history, and at some point we're going to talk about universal ancestry, but not right now. So, fourth son of Noah, how does this fit in? How is this like creating an ecosystem on granite rock? goes off far to the east to the land to the land of the rising sun uh, is actually what it says and there he is taught sort of esoteric wisdom from god and uh eventually like nimrod goes off and travels and uh he's uh, Nim he's the one that nimrod learns like divination and astronomy and things like this from um, nimrod learns this from yontong yeah, in the in the in the like the yeah. cave of wonders like in okay. the syrian text yeah and yontong's this fourth son of noah um, and of course, this is problematic because Nimrod also introduces the 
the worship of fire, um, right? He finds this fire ascending from the earth, like so the light coming from below as opposed to the light coming from above. Yeah. And he goes down to where the light is coming from and he uh, a voice speaks to him out of the fire and he worships it. And this is like a, a sort of like a Syrian, you know, there's a bit of a, like a polemic against their Persian neighbors here, right? Uh, the Zoroastrianism, the worship of fire. But anyway, so eventually Yonton tells him, you know, don't come back. You know, he teaches him some some stuff, but then he's kind of sees the direction Nimrod is heading and he tells him don't come back. So anyway, he's this interesting figure and he's really associated, you know, back when we were talking about India and the Far East, he's associated ultimately with the idea of like the Eastern of Eastern wisdom, the Eastern philosopher, the gymnosophist, yeah. all that stuff goes back to goes back to this this fourth son of Noah. So the weird thing is that there is actually there are a large number of connections which we are really just coming to understand when i say we i mean like the the scholarly community at large people who study uh, old english culture uh, uh germanic studies etc there are a large number of connections between what you could call the old testament pseudoepigrapha like the legit apocrypha when i say apocrypha i don't mean like tobit or maccabees or judith or something like that that's just the director's cut of the bible um, but when I so when I say apocrypha, I mean like really apocryphal stuff, like uh, um, you know, yeah, the, like life, the Book of Enoch would. The be... Book of Enoch is a good example, yeah. Or the life, unless you're Ethiopian, obviously. But um, uh, the Book of Enoch, the life of Adam and Eve, yep. stuff like that. So there is a huge connection between this apocryphal literature, uh, the Syrian tradition, uh, which was probably the the means of conveyance for a lot of these things, and anglo-saxon christianity mm -hmm. which is again uh, a very surprising kind of a thing and i think that's part of why it's <laughs> mm -hmm. it's taken us so long to notice uh, because in the past traditionally uh, academia has been very siloed so if you were somebody studying syriac or ethiopian you were probably not all somebody who was also studying you know beowulf yeah um, yeah but and, and this is why i'd love to see tom holland get into this because Tom Holland is interested in both sides. The Nestorians appear in the Middle Ages in the kind of weird tales as these, yeah, as these kind of mystical, yeah. So this similar is, to the way the gymnosophists appear. In the yeah, name. yeah, yeah. But this is even before that. This connection okay. goes back even before that. And um, in this case, we actually have a a, a name, a, a face, a date that we can probably peg the connection to. Um, so it comes through a couple of, of routes. One is that. And this is this is sort of where you see what will really have to go further what we what we really need to go forward which is the integration of modernist history with and the, the integration of modernist history and mythical universal history to to try and and that's exactly in my opinion what we're wrestling with with sort of the the different parts of our conversations in this little corner. There was a huge treasury of these pseudoepigraphal texts, usually translated first into Latin and then into Old Irish, that were kept in these Irish monasteries. Um, mm -hmm. And so people who know the story of the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons, um, it really happened uh, from two directions. There was a a Roman uh, uh, push for conversion kind of from the south. And then at the same time, there was a an Irish push for conversion from the north. And uh, eventually the two sort of met in the middle and they had some synods and, you know, it's a whole it's a whole thing. 
But these Irish monasteries, uh, uh, unfortunately, most of the manuscripts they had were destroyed by Vikings uh, during the Viking Age. But these Irish monasteries had um, extensive collections of these pseudoepigraphal texts. For instance, um, there is a, a an old Irish, um, it's called the Salter Narain, probably said that wrong uh, because it's old Irish, but, um, and, 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 uh, uh, my 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 brain does not do Gaelic languages. So okay. anyway, all the all the all the Gaelic like the old the old Irish speakers out there, you'll have to just forgive me. It's your Anglo-Saxon, you know, can't, manifest. Can't do it. Can't there. do it. Yeah. Can't. But the Salter and Arrain, uh, or which literally just means like the Psalter of the Quatrains, um, is a collection of about a hundred, I think it's exactly no, it's 150 because it's a Psalter, so it's got 150 poems in it. Um, it's a collection of of uh, 150 psalms or you know uh, quatrains, you know these poems that that have like these the basic stanza is four lines, right? And basically, it's the entire old Irish universal history of the world, starting with Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. um, and the creation of the world and going forward through time. And if you go read the Salter and Arrain, what they basically do is they take all of this, all of the pseudepigraphal stuff, and they take the early chapters of Genesis, and they take you know, the rest of the historical books of the scriptures and the gospels and all these things. And they just weave it together into a cohesive account. And I just want to emphasize, this was a book that was made for lay people. It's not written in Latin. It was written in old Irish uh, because the point of it was uh, that it would be easy way to sort of teach people the, I don't want to say teach people their Bible, but teach people the tradition, like teach Mm people, like pass on, pass on. What do we as Christians, it is, in a sense, teaching them their Bible, because if you're going to learn the Bible, it's going to have to be integrated into your worldview. And so if you're living at that place and time, you're going to have to figure out where the giants and the fairies, where all of these things came from that inhabit your world and how that connects with the Bible. In that sense, modernity itself is part of this part of this layer, organic layer, that allowed the modern world to have the Christian shape underneath, as Tom Holland talks about. I mean, that's basically, it's the granite substrata of the Bible, of this code that doesn't change, and it's all of this other stuff. And modern Christianity basically built on top of the granite. But now again, modernity sort of sliding off uh, Half Dome and other things are going to have to, other sedimentary compositional layers are going to have to kind of come in and build up. And that's sort of where all of the different interests that I have in this very meandering channel, I'm trying to, just even for myself, put all of this together. Let's get, let me get a little bit more of this. Christians believe about um, where we came from, the origins of people, their Bible, but teach people the tradition, like teach people, mm-hmm. like pass on, pass on. What do we as Christians believe about um, where we came from, the origins of humanity, where did demons and angels and fairies and all the stuff. And so you can go look at this. And I don't think the whole thing has been translated into English, mm. but good bits of it have. Uh, there might be, there might be a a, a a whole translation into English that's like really archaic. I think maybe back in the eighteen hundreds, but um, they probably... do give the origin of fairies in there. 
I mean, uh, we, yes. I mean, where 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 fairies are, on, uh, you're gonna get me off on a on on a thing here. Um, Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. I mean, uh, it's just so interesting. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I was at uh, I was at Doxicon in October, November, and uh, there were some symbolic world folks there, which was great. We got a picture together, and uh, it was great to see all. But at Doxicon, somebody gave this beautiful uh, talk, and it was just on you know, 19th century firsthand accounts of people who met fairies and the fairies were asking, well, can we be saved? Right. That was the question. And uh, the, the the general consensus in all of these stories seems to sort of be that's a question that cannot be known until the day of judgment. But anyway, yeah, like you start getting into the fairy thing. It's really interesting. But basically in the Middle Ages, there are two or three main theories of where fa what fairies are and where. OK, so you can watch the video to learn about the fairies. But watch how everybody's putting their stuff together. Again, it's 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 putting the soil on the granite in order for the trees to be able to grow and for the squirrels to have homes and for the deer and the bear and the bobcat and the whole ecosystem. And and this this basically is how human beings operate. In in modernity you know, there's sort of a scraping of the rock because, well, you know, too, too much, too many accretions. It's um, too many pitfalls. People are tumbling down. And, and I, I addressed in previous videos some of the reasons for the Reformation. But this is the process that we that we have to go through. And so then when you look at a book like like this one, this um, Joshua Swam, Swamidas, the genealogical Adam and Eve, I'm probably not going to have time to get into this too much in this video, but but this is the process of basically trying to put our world together. So this is a this is a genetic scientist who is also a believer, and he's having to sort of piece his world together. Now, to agree or disagree or whatever you decide to do with his ideas, this is all part of the process of, in a sense, developing a new universal history. Now, part of my point here is that you've got one whether or not you're aware of it. Um, a little while ago, oh, I, I guess it was the 21st or the 20th, uh, Eric Weinstein tweets, a lot of people naively believe in a shared vision of an America that never really was. You see the tensions between physicalist, modernist history versus universal mythological history that we all need to have a layer of in order for our plants to grow and for the ecosystem to flourish? Myself included, keep the faith. What is he saying? He is saying that, well, maybe George Washington didn't chop down the cherry tree, but there's something in that story. And you hear versions of this justification all over the place. You hear it for Christianity. You hear it for nationalism. Maybe... On Good Friday, 1865, Abraham Lincoln didn't die for the sins of the nation. Or maybe he did. This is how we piece our world together. We, we have to have these narratives. We have to have all of these pieces in order to live, and especially in order to create societies and civilizations that are actually built on these stories, just like the ecosystem of Yosemite is built on the soil that's on top of the granite. 
And my response to this was, I can understand what and why he's saying this, but I think, but it is, I think, unnecessarily stuck between nihilism and fideism. And I think this is exactly what the Jordan Peterson biblical quest is about, and even his political quest. And this happens all over. I remember, I've told this story before, I was dating the woman who would be my wife. She, her mother, was a fundamentalist Baptist, only read the King James Bible, went to a Baptist church that was, you know, we believe the Bible just as it is. And at that point, there was a guy named Leo Peters, and he was stirring up a lot of the this controversy because Calvin College was always sort of at the fault line between the fundamentalists and the modernists, and the Christian Reformed churches sort of too. And Leo Peters was was taking the fundamentalist line and taking out full-page ads in the Grand Rapids Press against Calvin College and a couple of professors that were in uh, a couple of different departments. And I was, you know, I was a young, snot-nosed, um, probably too wise, too smart for my wisdom. And I was, I was pestering my then-to-be... Or she might have already been my mother-in-law. And I said, well, pull out your Bible. Because I knew she had the King James. And I think I was in seminary at the time. So I, was, I might have been married already. I said, well, pull out your Bible. Because I knew what the King James said. And I knew that in many ways the King James maintained the pre-modern rendering of the text. Which is, is part of the reason for the divide in America. Because... There's a reason people are apt choosing for that. There's a lot of qualities that the King James Version has and some deficits. But I knew that the pre the pre-version, the pre-modern version of the text would have a firmament. And I would ask what a firmament is. And I would say, what are the waters doing above the firmament? And she'd say something like, Well, that's the clouds. And I'd say, uh, no, excuse me. Uh, the sun, the moon, and the stars are beneath the firmament clouds if if your water there in your genesis text in the king james version are the clouds above or below the sun and the moon well they're below well so it can't mean the clouds so where's the water where's the firmament because i was looking at an ancient near eastern cosmology versus what my mother-in-law had done which many have done and which some of you are going to do and i'll know you when you write your comment about this because you will and others will see it too unless I've scared you off by pointing this out, you have to figure, you have to pace this together. And if you go all the way back to where I started making videos about Jordan Peterson, it was because I always felt the tension that on one hand, I was reading a story that had a firmament with sun and moon and stars beneath the firmament within the bowl and waters above and waters below. And I was preaching to a room full of people that when they thought of the world, they thought of the sun and the earth going around it and the moon going around the earth and galaxies and all of that. All of these different pictures. And there's tension between the picture of the Bible and the picture of the world. And there are many organizations like, that. once I get into the, um, the book that I just said about the genealogy of Adam and Eve, universal genealogy, which is in some ways an attempt to get at universal history. There's all these attempts to try and piece our worlds together. And the fundamentalist take is, well, we're not going to look at science. We're going to look at the Bible. The Bible is going to act like science. 
the Bible isn't really like science, it's pre-scientific. And so there's difficulties there. And so, But we have to live in a coherent world. And, and whether we're paying attention to it or not, we're always putting this stuff together and it becomes our mythology or our fiction. Modernity developed fiction for exactly this purpose. And, and that's why in many ways the universities moved on from biblical studies and theology and went to humanities to get at this. Now, just this morning on Twitter, Someone pointed out to myself and Tom Holland this article in The Guardian by a Polly Toynbee. Christmas comes with good cheer. The tragedy is the religious baggage. This is the first Christmas since time immemorial that most people in this country, meaning the UK, are not Christians. Is that what the survey said? The latest census found those identifying as Christians fell from 59% to 46% in a decade, with 8 million people shifting to no religion. <laughs> Tom Holland took this thing on in Twitter and basically said, you know, you're sawing off the branch that your humanity is standing on. And historically, again, your humanities grew out of a substitution for theology in the university. So... And, and, oh, I just wish we could get rid of all the stories behind it, but we should keep all the traditions. Are you really going to be able to do that? Now, the video I made yesterday or the day before I talked about, I want to talk about this whole business of retconning. Now, to retcon is a really useful term, and you find it in comic books, you find it in movies, you find it in literature. What does it mean? In a film, television series, or other fictional work, or let's say in a mythical work, a piece of new information that interposes a different interpretation or different meaning on previously described events, typically used to facilitate a dramatic plot twist or account of an inconsistency. And this is basically what has been happening over the last few hundred years is that old old views of the world have been retconned. Now, the old things are never completely wiped out. They, they always remain at one layer or another. But in terms of the elites, sort of the layer that Aaron Wren was talking about, the world changes because something new happens. The verbal form, to revise, well, that's an awfully weak version of it, an aspect of a fictional work, or let's say an aspect of a mythological work. Retrospectively, typically by introducing a new piece of information that imposes a different interpretation on previously described events. I think fans get more upset when characters act blatantly out of established type or when things get retconned definition from Oxford languages. So all kinds of all kinds of things happen in the news that are like this when you discover um, uh, who, who was that guy who claimed that he was um, oh, what was his name? So you, you cannot say Jesse Smollett without noting what happened. In January 2019, Smollett staged a fake hate crime against himself in Chicago and later made false police reports regarding the incident. In December 2021, Smollett was convicted of five felony counts of disorderly con conduct and he was sentenced in March 2022 to 150 days in county jail. So he made claims about what had happened to him and then suddenly everyone was, oh, look at the hate crime against this, this gay African-American man. And then the retcon is when people learn that, oops, he made this up. And suddenly the whole valence shifts. 
That's that's what a retcon is like. Now, now these things happen have been happening in history with a lot of frequency. At one point in time, a distinction is made so that what was seen before, once you have this new knowledge, cannot be unseen. So if let's say someone, um, oh, let's say let's use another, another, another event that happened. Let's imagine that at some point, I, I talked about Alien Gonzalez and the picture, the famous picture of the cop coming in with the gun and him clutching the little boy, Aliens, the little boy in the closet, and he's crying. You know, if if news had come out that that whole thing had been faked, and this is why conspiracy theories are so powerful because. If we, we always sort of have the fantasy that some new information is going to retcon everything, especially retcon the things that we desire to not be true. So at one point in time, at, at a later point in time, a distinction gets made that makes it no longer possible to live in perspectively, procedurally, um, participarily, a previous existence. And we'll use the example of Ruach in Hebrew or Pneuma in Greek, which is spirit and wind. And if you read Owen Barfield, he points this out, C.S. Lewis will point it out as well, that at one point, wind and spirit was, we assume, in some ways, psychologically the same. It's the same word. Now, what happens once we no longer believe that, and, and again, we have to be really careful because we, we almost, when we look at this idea, we almost imagine that ancient people were naive. What we really want to say is that the use of the language is naive. Because what happens here is that now suddenly there are two different ideas. There's spirit, now in a, again, post Descartes, and again, Descartes was another moment like this. Post-Descartes, we think of spirit as non-physical. Yes, but spirit is also what moves physical. And when Jesus in the Gospel of John says, you don't see the spirit, but you see what it moves. And especially in the modern period, when we think of real is physical and um, non-physical is imaginary or projected, that's what basically materialism or certain physicalisms have entailed, reductive materialism. It's, it's really hard for us to talk about these things because these assumptions and definitions are in us so deep. So a few videos ago, ago I made this video about small p Protestants and big P Protestants and Jordan B. Cooper and... Um, Gavin Orland were having a great conversation where they're trying to define Protestantism and they made the distinction that, well, you've got Lutherans and Calvinists who are, who are sort of self-consciously Protestant, but then we have all of these other later groups that might or might not be Protestant, big P Protestants, but they're sort of little P Protestants because Part of what happens in the Protestant Reformation, and it doesn't happen because of the Reformation. I think, quite frankly, the Reformation is an expression of this because you see this before the Reformation and Jan Hus and elements of Wycliffe, and you see it in other places in the world, but something moves through and you can't see the world again in the same way. So small p Protestants have been retconned out of the ancient faith, 
in some ways, as have, and this is, some of you people aren't going to like what I'm about to say, as have many in the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox tradition. And, and I think we see this. I mean, part of what we see happening in Orthodoxy with this new Jordan Peterson, Peugeotian entry into Orthodoxy, those new people coming into Orthodoxy after having been new atheists are in many ways very different people than the immigrants who have come to Ireland or North America and have founded a Romanian Orthodox Church or a Greek Orthodox Church or a Ukrainian Orthodox Church or a Russian Orthodox Church or an Armenian Orthodox Church. All of those immigrants have a very different culture. And when you have sort of modernity and the acids of our modern world making their carried over the ocean orthodoxy, now unbelievable, and now post-modern people coming into the orthodox church, they're really two different animals. Now, they meet together and they you know, can sort of work together, but they're really at two different layers. That's part of the reason that all of these new converts to orthodoxy, no matter how excited they are about the tradition, will be different from those who brought the old world orthodoxy to America. You might say, well, Vander Clay, how dare you? You're not orthodox, yada, yada. I saw the same thing happen in the Christian Reformed Church with Dutch immigrants. And these processes simply go, this retconning, these, these retconning spirits, these powerful retconning spirits, have their way with us through history. And in many ways, we have to sort of work through them and overcome them. But what we get to on the other side is almost always different. And I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying it's different and it will be different in different ways. Postmodernity does, does the same thing. Once you once you sort of see postmodernity, you can't unsee it. Same thing with um, Jonathan Peugeot's work. You know, I've been watching Jonathan Peugeot for four years now, and and there are times when I listen to him and I'm thinking, boy, I really get it now. And you know what? Once I really get it now, I can't not get it again. I change. I'm in a different category. You know, it's 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 Paul of Tarsus. I mean, someone might say that, Paul, don't be an idiot. You had a good life as a Pharisee before, and Paul would say, yeah, I'm suffering like you wouldn't believe now. You got that list of terrible things that had happened to him. But he says, I can't go back. I've just seen too much. And that's how people are. Once we see something, we can't go back. This powerful spirit of retconning just moves us away. And then the only way through is forward. And there's no other way to go. Now, in the history of the United States, I talked about this quite a bit in the Aaron Renthe, you have the modernist fundamentalist fight. And this was a massive retconning in America, this massive divide. Modernist history became physical history. And we'll see this when we start listening to the Rest is History podcast about Jesus. Because we have to, by definition, exclude anything miraculous. Well, now you've added the retcon of, of the miraculous, of the supernatural. And that idea is a retcon, pure and simple. But again, once you see it, you can't not see it because you're embedded in the category. Now you might get beyond it. And I think that's exactly what we're struggling with and what's happening in this little corner, of course, far beyond it too. 
But this modernist fundamentalist fight is formative for understanding where we are today and what's happening today. Doubt crept in as to the epigenetics of the physical correlation of the flood. And so geology used to be, you know, geology said, well, we can understand all of this erosion that we see in the world because, well, we have the documentary evidence of the flood. In fact, it's not just in the Bible, it's in all of these other things. There was a worldwide flood, and when those waters receded, well, they must have carved out the Grand Canyon and Zion National Park. I mean, I love these parks. I the American West is a wonderful place to live because we've got some of the best places to go. But doubt crept in. Well, if if the flood isn't, if, if there you had your universal history, your mythical history, and then suddenly doubt was cast on it. Well, what else might be in doubt? And, and as a pastor who, in the CRC, we sort of live on this fault line, I'm always dealing with this. And, and it's... And it's traumatic when people, I mean, it's traumatic when people, well, I was taught that as a fundamentalist, the Bible and science are sort of parallel. It's one or the other. Knowledge is one thing. And you're going to have to work through these issues. And so this is what people are struggling with and then very and 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 it's one thing so again i mentioned that in the 19th century basically the modernists said we can't believe the bible with respect to history but again their definition of history had been retconned into modernist history so we can't take the bible as history but we can take it as divine revelation for moral values and that stuck around until the towards the end of the 20th century. And when that started to go, well, now you can't take the Bible for history, so why should you take the Bible for morality? Because isn't morality really trying to navigate history? And so what you have, and, and so whereas questions about science and Genesis, well, those have been sort of debated and wrestled with almost for, for 100 years now. And, and in some ways, even before, Augustine, Calvin, other church fathers wrestled with these questions, how to read the Genesis text, because they had similar other issues. But then when something like same-sex marriage comes around and people say, gosh, that same-sex couple seems kind of similar to a heterosexual couple on birth control. Birth control is a part of it. Well, maybe why would God not be in favor? They're, they're clearly better. Just this morning, I, I caught Jacob's just chatting from yesterday, and he was talking to a member of the Christian Reformed Church, and Jacob was talking about this issue he had been to. Um, he was there, I guess, when Spencer Clavin and his his husband, um, either they got engaged or something like that, and Jacob was doing some processing about Judaism and same-sex marriage. And so if you're curious about that, it'll take you a little bit of effort to run down the section where he's talking about it, but you can have at it if you want to. But we all have to process these things because we got to keep our world together. And, you know, just like here in Zion, you need enough soil there. Zion is a lot drier. It's on the other side of the Sierra. Um, you need enough soil to sort of allow the ecosystem to, to flourish. So modernists adopted a skeptical stance on history, physical history, modernist history. And, 
And, and basically what happened in our culture, which you see all the time, which many of you have written to, and some of you will pull up quotes that people have noticed this before, but just noticing something deep in our culture doesn't mean it doesn't have power. That, well, skepticism is sort of this is sort of the power stance. It's the power suit. Skeptical, well, we're we're just skeptical people are smart people, as if you can really live in skepticism land. And and this again, I think, is deeply afforded by Western culture, which has been enormously affluent and quite stable relative to the rest of the world. If you're living in a war zone, you're not afforded skepticism. You have to act or not act. And you might know and you might not know, but there's not a chance to sit on the fence. Western society gives us a massive fence and we all sit on it talking to each other. And anybody who's not on the fence, we're like, oh, they should, they should be on the fence with us. Well, you know what you can't do on the fence? Much of anything except talk. And so there's this modernist posture of skepticism, and um, and that and that got that basically took status. So people who are skeptical rode up the hierarchy partly because they didn't have to decide. And again, there's a lot of virtue in not deciding what you don't have to decide. And if your physical circumstances and your life circumstances are such that you don't have to decide, it's a wonderful thing. And so suddenly skepticism gets the upper hand, and. Well, anything I read in the Bible, I'm going to doubt. Why? Well, because skepticism gives me power. See, I just pulled a, a retcon postmodern move on skepticism. Oh, you're skeptical because it gives you power. That's the move, isn't it? Fundamentalism took the other thing and said, isn't so. Now, one of the blessings, I made this point before in a video a long time ago, Part of the reason why you continue to see what fundamental ha fundamentalism has going for it, it seemed that in many ways not embracing skepticism was healthier for faith. Why? Because the Bible could continue to function as your mythological history. And all of the wisdom in your Bible could continue to be afforded to you as mythological history. Now, certainly there'd be some downsides. But, that's why, in many ways, fundamental, fundamentalism had an advantage that skeptical modernism did not. It's, I'm just, it's just true. It's just true. And when you see fundamentalist families together, I'm not saying that there aren't refugees. I'm not saying that there aren't casualties. But it had an advantage over skeptical modernism. And I think people now coming through, after through the Jordan Peterson movement and all of this stuff, they're seeing that now. And, and so that's why people are adopting very non-skeptical stances on very old religious traditions. It makes sense and it works to a degree. So, but part of the problem of fundamentalism is it adopted the sort of, it adopted too much of modernity. It itself was after the retcon. And so that's when you get all kinds of crazy stuff like dispensationalism that says all of this stuff has to be all of this stuff has to be fulfilled in a physicalist way. So then you have then you have fundamentalists doing a bunch of the things that they've done like with the state of Israel and in all sorts of other ways. It's it's a product of it. You get dispensationalism. Dispensationalism could not be had without modernist fundamentalism in its particular way. It's just the way it is. Now, dispensationalism continues to fade because 
a lot of the underpinnings beneath beneath modernity are fading themselves. And, and this has been happening for a while. But then we get stuck with this guy who, you know, I mean, I, yep, I got, I got triggered. I got frustrated. I made a three minute video, but it's, it's, it's pedantic or it's obtuse. It's one or the other, because this is how people work. He included, we can't avoid it. And suddenly we're arguing about whether or not Abraham Lincoln could have wielded a chainsaw. What kind of a crazy reference is this Vanderclay? Well, if you know anything about American history, which I don't expect Cosmic Skeptic to know much about because he's not American, but Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States largely because he was a rail splitter. Did he what did he, did he use one of those hydraulic machines to split those rails? The, the, the questions don't make much sense if you have this sort of literalist, pedantic approach to the world. Oh, Jordan Peterson must be an atheist because he sees God as a fictional character. Well, when Jordan Peterson says fictional, he's really closer to myth. And if a myth is a narrative that you can live in perspectively, procedurally, and if you can live in it that way, yes, God is absolutely part of the myth. That's the definition of a myth. A myth is an untrue story. Gotcha. <laughs> Come on. It's, it's just not serious. Relevance realization of the historical physical correlation level in the meaning stack. So now after having been retconned, we have to figure out the proper place for physical history in the meaning stack. That was the point of that video. C.S. Lewis rightly notes that this is different and special for Christianity, unlike Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. In, of all books, surprise, surprise, his work on miracles. This is the beginning of Lewis's uh, a sermon that Lewis preached you can find Lewis talking about the grand miracle. It's in Miracles. This actually isn't from Miracles. I just worked that out. You can find it in God in the Dock. You can find it in other places. But Lewis makes this argument again and again and again. One is very often asked at present whether, see, at present, this is writing this in the 1940s, the 1950s. You just saw it in 2022 by um, Toynbee in The Guardian. One is very often asked at present whether we could not have a Christianity stripped or as people who who ask it, say, freed from its miraculous elements, a Christianity with the miraculous elements suppressed. Now it seems to me that, pre that, that precisely the one religion in the world, or at least the only one I know, with which you could not do this is Christianity. In a religion like Buddhism, if you took away the miracles attributed to a Gautama Buddha in some very late sources, there would be no loss. In fact, the religion would get on very much better without them, because in that case, the miracles largely contradict the teaching. And I think there's a reason why you have sort of California Buddhism being the way it is. Or even in the case of, um, of religion like Islam, nothing essential would be altered if you took away the miracles. You could have a great prophet preaching his dogmas without bringing, any, without bringing in any miracles. Um, they are, they are only in the nature of a digression or an illuminated capitals. 
You cannot possibly do that with Christianity because Christianity, because the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. There may be many admirable human things which Christianity shares with other systems in the world, but there would be nothing specifically Christian. And you can read Lewis pursue this in, in many different cases. Now, history seems to have children. There's naive history, which is before all of the retconning splits. It's a story. It's a myth. Um, it's physical, it's fictitious, it's all of those things together, just like all of our stories are. Um, in the Bible, you will find the parable of the prodigal son. Nobody will make a fuss about the parable of the prodigal son. You'll find other stories that are debated um, as to exactly how are we supposed to think about this. And many of those debates have happened in Christianity for a very long time. It's all together, though. It's not split up. That doesn't mean that the ancient people themselves were naive, but the story itself functioned as in the as with the Irish, with their universal history. People understood the distinctions and worked on them, but it was still sort of um, sort of all one thing as seen in universal history or mythological history. What happens with the retconning of modernity is that suddenly you have this modernist filter and anything, supernatural, there's the filter. Well, we can't talk about that. Uh, maybe you can believe it, but that's, and then you find this all the time in PBS things. That's the God of faith, not the God of history. And when you hear that, you know that history has been split up. There's a preoccupation with physical history. Now, again, in C.S. Lewis's Miracles, one of the points that C.S. Lewis makes is that even if you consider... Um, supernatural, Lewis uses that language in Miracles, um, nature doesn't really seem to have a problem with it. It just goes right on. And for Lewis, that's part of the argument that nature just sort of absorbs the miracles and just keeps right on moving. Now, I don't know if that verbal framing is the best way to frame it, but Lewis's point, I think, is a good one. So you have this split between modernist history and mythical universal history. Now, to apply that split back onto the Bible just doesn't make sense. And Lewis makes that point in a number of illustrations in his book, Miracles, when he, he looks at things and says, you can't just read, you can't go backwards. He doesn't use this language. You can't go backwards through these retcons. It doesn't work that way. You can no longer think of Juicy Smollett, Jussie Smollett, as a guy who didn't fake something. Um, you have that with relationships. You have that all the time. There's no going back. You can act as if, but there's no going back. And as I said before, mythical history will happen. Um, Brett, we or Eric Weinstein sees it. We all do it. We all see it. And it's that hobbling together. It's that messy way of trying to add that other layer that is really... It's, it's really what we're what we're all working on. So I want to do, I want to get into the rest is history. I want to get into the podcast. Um, I'll have to see just how long this video is to decide 
if I want to include it in this video or if I want to do it as a separate video. But this is absolutely critical for understanding all the language I'm going to use in the next video. Okay, so I checked the timing and I'm only a little bit, about an hour and five minutes into this. So we can do this whole thing in one mega, maybe two hour episode. So the first part, I looked at all these history, these issues of history and how history is sort of split and what we mean by that. Now I want to apply some of that language to the specifics of this two-part series from The Rest is History on Jesus Christ. Episode one was called The Mystery. Episode two was called History. And I'm going to play some of episode one and then some of episode two, and we'll talk about it as we go. Yes, and you've been dreading it ever since. <laughs> well, no, I haven't been dreading it, but I wanted to do it justice because, as you say, it is. Um, I mean, it's a Jesus. Is... Now, now, Tom, in a number of places, expresses his uh, the, the caution with which he approaches this because he knows full well that there are people on both sides of this this issue, people who on many sides of this issue, and he also knows that when it comes to scholarship. As he says later in the first podcast, there are hosts of brilliant scholars who study these issues all their life in the most minute of details, and poor Tom is going to try and cover this in a two-hour section. So he's he knows he knows what's coming. It's, to put it mildly, a very famous historical figure, and it, it's an incredibly complex subject because yeah. it is a subject that touches on theology as well as history. Uh -huh. And that makes it complicated um, because obviously the issue of who Jesus was, uh, what he might have taught, what happened to him, even the question of whether he existed, which some have, have doubted, is a topic of huge sensitivity for believers, for people yeah. who believe that this person was the son of God, was simultaneously human and divine, but also I think for people who are militantly opposed to uh, belief in God and who therefore yeah. would very much like to, to, to believe that he, say, didn't exist at the most extreme wing. And so it provokes faith responses both from believers and from non-believers. And the challenge, therefore, is to try and kind of steer your way between that, the Scylla and Charybdis of those two opposing positions. Understood. But if now... I said before that in some ways, YouTube and I suppose podcasts is sort of like church. People don't like getting kicked in their axioms. People like getting their axioms stroked. People like having their axioms protected. And so even just talking about an issue like this triggers some people. That's just the way it is. Of course, it's hopeless because I... I... I, I think it's impossible to be raised in a, a, a fundamentally Christian society uh, as we have been and not have perspectives on this that yeah. in so many ways are alien to the world that Jesus was born into. But the, that is the challenge is to try and get some sense of what do the, what, you know, what, are, what do the sources tell us and what are the kind of, what's the kind of broader context that might make, yeah. you know, provide, give us some. And, and again, this is everything they said about, okay, this is, the sources now. Every time I hear, every time I hear someone with a, a British accent say "sources," I always think of sauces. <laughs> Instead of, I had some good friends who were from who were from the UK that served with us in the Dominican Republic, and 
and we'd we'd always we'd always kid them about the sauces word. I mean, the, the sources are sauces. Some chance to kind of arrive a sense of what he might. But have people been. have been doing this for three hundred years, Tom, haven't they? They've been trying to um, unpick the sources to make sense of Jesus as a historical. Now that three hundred years is important because again, that's modernity, and and the project of modernity said, well. The only thing we can really know about Jesus will be on the physical level if we can discover that. And I talked before about the grammatical historical approach to the Bible. History, you can try and have that be public. Grammar, what's in the text is public. And so again, modernity comes into this and 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 basically takes a hold of it and raises it up our salience hierarchy and say, this is what certainty is. Now, I've mentioned this commentary series before, and this is ancient Christian commentary on scripture. And what the fun of this series is that it minds church fathers in sort of a commentary way. It, it sort of plucks out of church fathers their various letters and writings and such and and creates um, sort of a modern commentary out of it and and what's fun about this is that when you read this you very quickly feel the distance between between modern commentaries and these commentaries because whereas again the relationship to the physical the physical history, it's not that the ancients weren't interested in that or weren't concerned about it or were naive about it. It's just these things these things played differently for them than they do us. And, and even when you read commentaries, let's say, from the end of the 19th century or beginning of the 20th century, usually depending on uh, depending on where they're where they're from in the political spect in the theological spectrum, when you start wading into the wild world of commentaries, you, you begin to realize that there's all different concerns that people have with the text. And a lot of these concerns have everything to do with the relevance realization of what they hope to find in the text. In the modern period, there are a lot of commentaries that were almost, almost completely useless for a minister of normal people. And, and you get these stories like you got with, with Abraham Kuyper, who was educated at the end of the 19th century and all of the, um, all of the modern historical criticism that, again, came out of Germany. Tom's going to mention Germany. And he, he's, his head was full, filled with all this stuff. And then he goes into a little country church in the Netherlands and he starts preaching. And what he discovers there is faith. And this very much is connected with what John Verveke talks about, sort of the inside versus the outside. And that language inside and outside is helpful, but it does, it does sort of mirror the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history in that one perspective is supposedly more objective. It's like at least, and people have tried to use different words besides objective and subjective. One might say public and private, but none of these distinctions really sort of get at the whole of it. And when you study someone like Jesus, it shows. Figure, I mean, I guess every, almost everybody listening to this podcast, I'm assuming everybody will know the outline of the story. Born in a manger, wise men, uh, all of this stuff, then a bit of a blank, and then entering Jerusalem. Well, ba baptized, by, baptized by by a figure called John the Baptist. Yeah, 
uh, tells parables, teaches, yeah. um, all that kind of stuff. Casting out demons, yeah. Casting out demons, uh, enters Jerusalem, um, overthrows the moneylenders in the temple, um, arrested by uh, the soldiers of the high priest, uh, delivered over to Pilate, the prefect of Judea. Yeah. He's crucified. And then, according to Christians, he rises from the dead. So we are talking, I mean, we're, we really are talking, I guess, aren't we, about the single most, if, if Jesus did exist, he is the single best known person who has ever existed. People use his name without thinking about it. Every, they must use it every minute on this planet, you know, as a, as a expression of, 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 of exasperation, of outrage, or as a prayer, or as an invocation, or whatever. I think, I mean, I think his only rival would be Muhammad, and I would put Jesus ahead of Muhammad in the, the fame stakes, simply because Jesus is also a figure in the Quran. But I, I compare, I think the comparison is often made between Jesus and Muhammad, but I think actually the comparison that is much more germane is between Jesus and the Quran, because both Christianity and Islam have at their heart the idea that the divine entered the world. So that, that is such an interesting statement, and um, I think... I often tell people it's not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures; it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think I think Tom really has his hand on something there. For Muslims, the Quran is the Word of God, and for Christians, Jesus is he is he is God the Son. Yeah. And so, for the historian, that means that there's a kind of molten core of the weird, of the supernatural, of the strange, of the okay. So. The reason I went through that whole first hour about history, for the historian, for the modern historian, because these are all the filters, because the humanities have gotten a beaten by science, and so history and biblical studies all want to be seen as science in the modern world. So now the historian has to has to has to look for certainty, and certainty is found in the scientific way. Explicable at the beginnings of both those stories that I think has been fundamental to I explaining the impact that both those great traditions have had, Christianity and Islam. And just to look at Islam first, at no point do we have any record of anyone in the Muslim tradition doubting that the Quran is the word of God. That seems to be absolutely fundamental to Muslim identity right from the very beginning. Yeah. The problem for the historian is that the only account we have... Now, now that definition of Islam is really interesting because, you know, if you all the way from the start, one of the big questions was, well, how, how do you define a Christian? How do you define a Christian? And I've often given my definition, which is a Christian is someone who trusts Jesus more than they trust themselves. Now, I could have said a Christian is someone who trusts God more than they trust themselves. And you say, well, well Jesus is God for Christians. Yeah. And that's why Jesus, as opposed to, and and what he says there about 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 Islam is also interesting, and and probably, and so then you see, Islam. I don't know that Islam has had the same kind of fight in it that in America we had between the modernists and the fundamentalists. But the big fight I talked when I did the commentary on Aaron Wren's talk. The big fight in the modernist fundamentalist fights, like Old Princeton had a big fight. The fundamentalists lost. They founded Westminster, Philadelphia, and Princeton. 
um, continued on to the point where, as we talked about, um, Tim Keller was awarded a prize and then had to um, then they had to take the prize away because there was so much outrage on the part of the students. Of how the Quran comes into being is the Muslim account that is written a couple of centuries later. Uh-huh. So in a sense, it, it's it's basically impossible, I think, for historians to get back to the the mystery of how the Quran came into being and how people came to think that it was the word of God. You just, in a sense, you have to take it as read that that is what people believed. Likewise, with the Christian tradition, the idea that there was something fundamentally strange about the figure of Jesus. And of course, it's focused on the idea that he's, he's raised from the dead. But I don't think that's adequate to explain the incredibly elevated status that he seems to have been awarded by Christians pretty much from the beginning. What is it about him? What is it yeah. about this figure that 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 leads him to, to, to be cast as part of the, the omnipotent uh, eternal Godhead, this sense that there is a, a weirdness at the core of the story is part of what makes the analysis of this story so so difficult. But I think it's also... Now, now the weirdness... If you go back to my conversation with Tom Holland when I was in London, part of what we were seeing... what Part of what we're seeing now is that in here in late modernity, religions that are weird get traction. They, they get grief too, but they get traction. And in, in many respects, the goal is to, if your religion isn't weird, it's not respected because people have a sense that um, if it isn't weird, it isn't real, or at least it isn't authentic to you because you're not doing anything sacrificial. So kind of brilliant because it is a way of taking us back into the ancient world where there was no real division between the natural and the supernatural. There is no concept of the secular. There is no concept that... Um... Okay, and that's this is exactly the fork that I talked about in the first hour. The divine can be separated out from the dimension yeah. of the mortal. And so I think even the most secular, skeptical historian has to in a sense, find a, a place in their analysis for the strangeness and the weirdness that has, for 2,000 years, has underlain Christian faith. So what we're going to do, Tom, we're doing two episodes, aren't we? The mystery and and then the history, or the history and the mystery. Yeah, brilliant. We quite brilliant. How we're gonna, um, <laughs> and I guess, some, I mean, we're going to look at the context, we're going to look at the sources, we're going to try and reconstruct, or you're going to try and reconstruct with me also present you're going to try and reconstruct as best we can yeah what some sense of the historic the historical figure of jesus but just for those people who don't really know and again when you look at nt wright did some lectures prestigious lectures i forget the name of them i covered them covered some of those lectures this quest for the historical jesus starts in the modern period because the definition of history has changed. And so they're trying to apply these new tools to get at the source of the, basically of the foundation of the culture that they're in. More than 2000 years ago, we're in the Eastern Mediterranean. We did a, a few podcasts and we did a series about the life of Cleopatra. Yep. So we're we're a generation after that, and we also did two on um, on the Judean the, the the Judean revolt. So it's it's between Cleopatra and the Judean revolt. So the basically. first character we mentioned in this episode was Caesar Augustus. So the Roman Empire 
has, as it were, begun. Uh, Augustus has it's a, it's his it's his Pax Romana, isn't it? It's his he has put an end to the civil wars. It's a period of pe- of relative peace and stability, and it's in this context that this man, if he is a man, um, is born, lives, and dies at the turn of the what are we what are, the turn of the first century AD. I, I suppose, but but Dominic, I mean that's yes. that's that's a that's an absolutely kind of ringy example of the difficulty of treating Jesus just like any other historical figure. Is that of course he you know his 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 birth defines our dating system. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of you know it's even though as we'll see he seems not to have been born in one AD or right or not one BC no or whatever. There, yeah. <laughs> there is no yeah. naught. And I think and 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 that's that's non-controversial. Um, most most people sort of put it four to six BC, something in that range. The further, you know, so, so, so that is is why Jesus is has always seen been seen as a complicated figure for historians to grapple with, is that he is also a theological figure. And so mm-hmm. you mentioned how, for the past three hundred years, really, people have been trying to kind of strip away the cladding of of theology. But it's often yeah. theologians who do this. So I guess the first guy who did this was a, was a, a German scholar called Rimarus who in the 18th century, in the kind of the heyday of the Enlightenment, he cast Jesus as um, as a pretty orthodox Jew who kind of descended from, uh, you know, the hill country and aspired to uh, become the kind of the worldly deliverer of Israel. So it's this idea that he is a rebel of a kind that in due course will lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, then you then in the, the 19th century, you have various explanations. You have, a, again, a German. Germans are popping up all over the place in this tradition. Um, and he's rejecting all this kind of supernatural stuff as a simple kind of mythical cladding. Uh-huh. It's, it's kind of- so there again, there's there's the filter. And if you apply the filter, you will get the results of the filter. Mythical elaborations. Yeah. You have a Frenchman called Ernest Renan, also in the nineteenth oh, yes. century, who who he's he's supplying kind of psychological explanations for it. So again, that's been a very popular tradition. And then at the beginning of the twentieth century, you have a guy called Albert Schweitzer, very kind of eminent, distinguished figure, um, not just as a, a theologian, and he casts Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet. And what all these traditions have is that they're trying to de-theologize Jesus. Right. So they're basically saying he's not a supernatural figure. He's a man, and 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 then suddenly, you, well, what what then is his importance? What then is his role? How does he stand with respect to history? And and you get into well, you know, very practical f- for people. Well, how is he an example to us? Is he someone that I can call upon in prayer and expect some help? You know, this yeah. is what he actually was. But I were. think. For what it again? Watch the language. Actually, really, all these words—they're—they're they're basically words of saying, in terms of the, the either the the peak of our stack or the um, the foundation of our stack. That's the those are the words. It's worth that. Actually, you have to keep a sense of the weirdness because otherwise, you're not getting back properly into the cast of mind of the world that he's born into, and it's not just. And, and to a certain degree, that perspective that, okay, so there's there's going to be a weirdness. And unless you account for the weirdness, you can't actually historically engage with it. Pure modernity would be, there is no such thing as weirdness. There's only weird feelings. There's only weird perceptions. And so we will just deal with the public, which would be the physical layer, 
and everything else goes. But very quickly, well, you mean mind, intentionality, intent, all of these things. Well, okay, I guess we got to allow that in. So then, you, then you're stripped. That's sort of peak modernity. It's all monarchical vision. And now we're coming into post-modernity where, well, we have to consider minds. Well, minds have agenda. Minds have biases. And so, and, and once you sort of open that door, okay, well, now we have to consider all the minds of all the characters in the drama. Palestine, it's not just Judea and Galilee mm-hmm. where this is current. It's across the empire. And when you look at the at what is happening in the first century AD across the entire span of Rome's provinces, Jesus doesn't actually seem that strange a figure. So I just I just want to read you a passage from Tacitus, who is writing about the year of the four emperors, AD 69. And he's describing Vitellius, um, man who loved his pies, yeah. one of the four emperors. And he's he's arrived in, uh, in Lyon. And Tacitus describes there a certain Maricus, who is a Gaul uh, from the tribe of the Boii, uh, who boldly endeavored to thrust himself into greatness and to challenge the armies of Rome, pretending to be divine. This champion of Gaul and God, as he had entitled himself, had already gathered a force of 8,000 men. Um, and Tacitus describes how he's starting to whip up a revolt. But he gets uh, arrested, he gets brought uh, before Vitellius, um, and he gets thrown to wild beasts. And then Tacitus says, as they refused to devour him, the common people stupidly believed him invulnerable until he was executed in the presence of Vitellius. So now, now that's kind of a nice... The common people stupidly believed. The ancient world had this category of superstition. And they that would basically bullshit. And they would they would call others on it and they'd believe or not believe. Again, the filters are not new, but in many ways the the let's say the 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 public posture of the filters of this consistent filter is is what defines modernity and post-enlightenment. We know nothing more about this guy, Maricus, but he's claiming to be a god. Uh, People believe that he can't be put to death, that he's somehow triumphed over uh, the apparatus of the Roman state. And this is just one of a kind of multitude of rebellions that are happening throughout this period. There's a German prophetess in a tower who likewise is thought by her followers to be divine. There's the Druids in Britain who get slaughtered because, again, they are seen as kind of uh, people who can channel a divine power that is seen by the... Now, now C.S. Lewis makes this point that you find this all over the place. Everyone thinks they're they're divine. But the Jews, and C.S. Lewis doesn't really go into this point because he doesn't touch on Kaufman. The Jews have a very different idea of divinity. But Lewis picks up on this point that for, for this to happen among the Jews, you would have a Jew maybe say, I'm a prophet, I'm a Messiah, but to say I'm God. And this sort of leads into the debate whether or not Jesus claimed to be God. And I, again, I think if you, I, I think you have to have a certain degree of bias towards the sauces, bias towards the sources. And these are the these are it seems to me that that's what Jesus claimed. Now, it, it's funny when and Lewis picks this up too because generally speaking, when people make such claims, we dismiss them. But the difficulty that gets into Lewis's famous trilemma: um, liar, lunatic, Lord. And yeah, the trilemma isn't bulletproof, but it it does it does carry a degree of persuasion because on one hand, it's hard to say well this was a 
powerful and amazing and, and incredibly perceptive teacher. And they, oh, except for the, his megalomania, that was the problem. The Romans are somehow threatening. And so Jesus is in this, you know, looked at in the broader sense, he is a figure who is put to death by the Romans as king of the Jews, as a rebel against yeah. Roman power and who claims some kind of divine authority. So in that sense, he's not so unusual. Right. So, and that bloke you described in Tacitus. So we know that bloke existed. Oh, or we assume he did because we don't think Tacitus is lying. Well, we, why would we have any um, reason not to think that? Right, exactly. And, and this gets into, and this is a very fair, evaluation of the sources with respect to bias and agenda. And so I don't find the modernist leaning against the Gospels as offensive or unfair because, well, these were obviously fans, followers, disciples of Jesus who believed he was who he was, and so they're going to write that in such a way. And that then holds to, well, Josephus, and, well, Josephus wasn't a Christian, and so, and that then gets into the evaluation of a particular passage out of Josephus. So that raises the question, Jesus. So there will be some people listening to this podcast who will have started listening thinking and saying to themselves, well, this is a strange subject for a history podcast because I don't believe Jesus did exist. I think I don't, I'm not a Christian. I think it's all invented. You know, maybe it's invented by St. Paul later on, um, you know, the, the great sort of uh, proselytizer of Christianity. Maybe it's been cooked up by the Romans, you know, the Catholic Church, blah, 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 blah. But Jesus is all a bit of a fiction and a fairy tale. But Tom, I think it's fair to say that you don't think that, do you? I don't think any any historian thinks that. I don't think any credible historian thinks that. And the reason for that is that, unlike Maricus... Now, this point is... This is why I think, in many ways, secularity is built on Christianity. And one could make an argument that secularity is sort of the, the sneakiest evangelistic, <laughs> evangelistic agenda ever conceived. And, and perhaps in some cases counterproductive. But there's a credibility here that, well, these historians are going to look supposedly objectively, that's the whole modernist project, objectively at the data, and you'll still find people on Twitter uh, who will say, no, Jesus is a made-up character. And Tom Holland says, well, even amongst people who like him or don't like him, believe he's the son of God, or believe that this Christianity thing was a horrible mistake, most people just looking at the evidence can't really get around his historicity. In uh, Gaul, we have quite a detail, well, not, I mean, by the standards of ancient history, we have a very, very detailed understanding of what is going on in Judea, in Galilee, at this period, in the first century AD. Yeah. And... You know, by the standards of ancient history, we actually know an enormous amount about the world into which Jesus is born. And I know you love a discussion of sources. <laughs> I, I dread a discussion <laughs> of sources, Tom. I can hear people switching off. I can't not hear sauces. I, 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 I dread a discussion of sauces. Well, we can have honey mustard sauce. We can have barbecue sauce. We can have ranch dressing. But I think, I think in, this, in this context, it is, it, it's worth looking at. I think it's worth looking both at the references to Jesus per se, yeah. but also the much broader context that enables us to have a sense of the world into which he's born. So references to Jesus, we have this one reference to Maricus, 
Uh-huh. We have quite a lot of references. I mean, considering that Jesus is a, a guy, you know, a provincial who gets crucified, we have quite a few. So, admittedly, some of them are quite problematic. Some of them aren't absolutely certain. But there's a kind of haze there. So the the, the first, the, as far as we know, the earliest one is is by Josephus, who we talked about in the context of the Judean Revolt, and Je- yeah. Josephus is the key figure for enabling us to have a sense of what of of, of how accurate the Gospels are. And to what extent Jesus is a historical figure? So remind people who who is who is Josephus, Josephus. is a, a, a Judean who is brought up in Jerusalem, very well educated. He's from the, the the priestly class that basically have responsibility from the Romans for administering Jerusalem. Um, he joins the revolt against the Romans in the late sixties. He gets captured. He persuades Vespasian, the commander of the Romans, against the Judeans, who goes on to become emperor, that he is going to become emperor. And so he ends up a Roman citizen, and he writes an account of the Judean War, and then he writes a very, very long account history of, of, um, of the Judeans. And it's in this later account that he seems to mention, uh, well, he mentions kind of various figures who appear in the New Testament. So he mentions John the Baptist, Right. So John the Baptist clearly seems to be a historical figure. He describes how John is put to death, all that kind of stuff, although he doesn't link him to Jesus. So there's no hint of the Christian tradition that uh, John the Baptist um, baptizes Jesus. So for people who don't know, John the Baptist is... Well, he's we'll a, pre- he's we'll a forerunner yeah. of Jesus. Who go? Well, I, yeah. I mean, this is unbelievably simplistic. He goes around baptizing people. <laughs> uh, yes, a little bit more than that, but yes, ba- yeah. that's ba- that's basically his thing. Um, and then there's a very notorious passage which seems to mention Jesus himself. Uh, Josephus is describing all the events that happen in uh, Pilate's period of office in Judea. And so he describes all the various things that Pilate does, how he introduces imperial images into Jerusalem, so images of Caesar, which yeah. you know, doesn't go down well, how he expropriates temple funds to build an aqueduct. And then he comes to Jesus and his followers. And the passage as we have it is, is as follows. About this time comes Jesus, a wise man, if indeed it is proper to call him a man. For he was a worker of incredible deeds, a teacher of those who accept the truth with pleasure, and he attracted many Judeans as well as many who live like Greeks. This man was the Christ. And when in view of his denunciation by the leading men among us, Pilate had sentenced him to a cross, those who had loved him at the beginning did not cease to do so. He appeared to them on the third day alive again, for the divine prophets had announced these and countless other marvels concerning him. And even now the tribe of the Christians named after him has not yet disappeared. Now, this is definitely ornamented. You know, this man was the Christ, this man was the Messiah. Josephus wouldn't have written that. We know for a fact that Josephus did not write that because Origen, who is a church father in the early 3rd century AD, flatly says that Josephus did not think Jesus was the Messiah. So this has definitely, definitely been elaborated. And so there are some who say that it's completely fake. So when you say elaborated, you mean it's been altered by Christians later on? I mean, it's definitely been written up by by Christians, but the, the issue is, was it, you know, was there a kind of core at the beginning? And I think that, Probably the balance of, of, of consensus is that there was a, you know, there's a kernel that then got written up. So uh, there's a biblical scholar called John P. Mayer, and he's offered his version. At this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. He gained a following both among Jews and of Greeks. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. So basically, all the kind of theological Christian stuff has been purged, and you perhaps have a hardcore. I mean, we don't know. Because right. we have no, and I'm afraid. And it's it's helpful to 
and I think I think Tom handled that perfectly. Um, <laughs> so then what you wind up doing is trying a reconstruction. Now, is the reconstruction accurate? It's hard to know, but you give it a try. And, and of course, it reflects our filters, but it's the best we can do. That throughout this podcast, there's going to be a lot of we don't know. Oh, it's very frustrating. But I would say that that the balance of probability is is that Josephus probably does mention him, and and the reason for that is that he also mentions Jesus's brother James, who gets put to death by a, an amusingly named high priest called Ananus. 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 We called him Ananias in Sunday school. If we had if we had used that other name, I think uh, there wouldn't have been any order in the class. So that's that's a good bit of the front part. I want to catch a little bit by the end. But definitely, it was so funny listening to Glenn Scripter's The Rest of Sisters, my favorite podcast. Me too. Um, it is my favorite podcast. I, I, I've I, listened to almost all of the episodes. I'm a little bit behind. They put out a lot of them during the, uh, during the World Cup. But um, yeah, I very much recommend it. Let me jump to a little part later in this episode. All right, I want to hit the section about Alexander because that touches on the universal history. Uh, Jonathan Peugeot and Richard Rowland had, you know, had, I think I think they had an entire episode on Alexander, and and this gets then into the. We have this modernist view of history, but history as in terms of a past that we project ourselves in. I, I had this tweet on on Twitter. You know, we enslaved the Africans. Well, you must be a couple hundred years old if you enslaved an African in in the united states before the civil war no 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 we well what do you mean we and then Bibi netanyahu is on jordan peterson and he makes this argument about we and so these these questions about global and communal identities are really tough and i find some people are like no there's no such thing as these communal identities but before you know it they're sliding into them and so this universal history is all about sort of being in connection with the past and understanding that we are parts of we are parts of beings bodies bodies it's the best word we are parts of bodies that that lived before us and go on after us this is this is absolutely par for the course for anyone who works in the field of ancient history so you, you've talked about alexander so you have exactly the same spectrum of opinion around Alexander. You have people who write biographies of Alexander, notable historians who live in the Cotswolds among them. <laughs> yeah, or Robin Lane Fox. Or, well, Robin Lane Fox or, or, yes. or Peter Green, I mean, who are very, very reputable classicists. And they will write biographies of Alexander, drawing on the texts and saying, Alexander did this, he said that, whatever. And there are others who are so skeptical that they doubt that you know Alexander was ever taught by Aristotle, or that you know we can say anything. We don't really know anything about Alexander at all, apart from the fact that he conquered the Persian Empire. Ultimately, it comes down to weighing and sifting the evidence, placing it in the broader context, and kind of arriving at your own conclusion. The the complication with Jesus, of course, is that the people who study the Gospels are either Christian or very militantly anti-Christian. Yeah. And so by and large, if you're Christian, you're going to essentially say, yeah, we can rely on this. And if you're militantly anti-Christian, you're going to say, no, it's all nonsense. I mean, I'm being unfair because there are absolutely examples of scholars who say Bart Ehrman would be the classic example, someone who was a very devout Christian, went to study, um, you know, theological college, uh, studied all the, the, um, 
the question of the historical Jesus and ended up losing his faith and is now on the kind of the much more skeptical wing. Equally, you have, so Dale Allison, who I mentioned, is a, is a Christian, but is quite, you know, skeptical about quite a lot of the traditions mm. um, for reasons that are deeply rooted in, you know, an understanding of how history functions. So I don't want to, you know, my position of relative ignorance kind of sound like I'm I'm sneering at it. I'm absolutely not. But I'm I'm just saying that nobody thinks Alexander was a god. Nobody thinks Augustus was a god. But people do think Jesus is God. Yeah. And so therefore that does make it more complicated. But ultimately, it doesn't make it that much more complicated. Because what you have to do with all this stuff is to kind of weigh it up and say, well what do you what do you think? So I I think in part two that's what we should look at. We should we should say, well, you know, we've looked at the mystery. Can we get to the history? So we've got Josephus, we've got Tacitus, we've got the archaeology, we have the context of the Roman world and the world of Galilee and Judea. And we'll pause that and then we'll jump into the next. Okay, so in the second episode, he starts out saying some skeptical things about Jesus' birth, uh, to which, as I mentioned earlier, Glenn Scrivener jumped on that with... Uh, with Dr. Peter Williams, and you can but in a way that we are able. You can you can watch that. It's a it's a it's a good treatment. If any any evangelical commentary, or even even a lot of critical commentaries, the the going back and forth on this with respect to Herod the Great, Quirinius as governor of Syria, the census taxation. These 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 debates go on and on and on and on, and I noticed that uh, Justin Brierley and Unbelievable had a thing with uh, N.T. Wright, and and again you find this is this is a I'm not saying it's unfounded concern, but it's a modernist concern because the sense is that well maybe all of this is just propaganda that has been drummed up by Christians and. You know, it shouldn't it shouldn't be believed. And so then others will run in and say, no, these these books are reliable and and worthwhile. So if you're looking for the answer, you know, again, all of the all of the biases and and ways goes around this. But I think having the having the understanding of I'll pull up the picture again because it's been a few hours since I started the first having the understanding of sort of the granite and then the ecosystem that gets built upon it i think is is helpful for getting an image of of how this works you need you need to have some you will you will always have some sort of implicit universal history and that's part of why these modern historical questions become such a battlefield for influence in modern populations. Because he's attacking the claims to divine authority of both the temple okay. priesthood and of, uh, of Pilate as Caesar's representative. Yeah, but he is still appealing to people who are not normally appealed to, isn't he? He is. You yes, know, he prostitutes, is. tax collectors, whatever. Yes, he whatever. is. Yeah. He is. I mean, so, so the kingdom of heaven manifests itself in all kinds of subversions. Right. Okay, so he's a subversive. He's a very subversive. He's, an, he's a very subversive figure. Yeah, he's an incredibly subversive figure. Now, my second question slightly cuts against that. Is he the Jewish Messiah? So there is this idea, isn't there, rooted within the sort of Jewish, or maybe you would say Judean. Don, Don just goes right in. Prophetic tradition that 
a king, a descendant of David, will arise and lead, you know, the children of Israel to who knows what, some new golden age. Is is he consciously laying claim to that? I think he is, because I think that it's very difficult to, to understand otherwise why the Romans would have crucified him. And it's also very difficult to understand why, after his death, his followers would have enshrined him as the Messiah, would have thought of him as the Messiah. Because, you know, I mean, OK, so they think he's risen from the dead. That in itself would not be sufficient to make it obvious that he's the Messiah. So I think that that all the evidence suggests that Jesus must have laid claim to that. And the whole thing about him entering Jerusalem, say, on the on the donkey, all that kind yeah. of stuff suggests that this is, I think, part of what he's teaching. So I, we are going to come to a break in a second, but just... Now, now the, there's a number of little things in there that I would clean up um, that I, I would at least put my own two cents worth. Part of, part of the donkey business, read uh, the book of Samuel. Um, that was, th- those were the mounts that, that David and his sons rode. So that's, that's, that's part about the, the donkey business. There are a number of other sections. That, but part of what makes the Bible fun is it's so much of it is endlessly debated. And it's not nothing to debate. There's, there's, lots of, there's lots of data. There's lots of arguments. We've had basically in the Christian world and in the Jewish world even longer, 2,000 years of fighting over these events and over the tellings of these events and the stories of these events. But just before, you were talking a little bit earlier about this thing about whether or not he's a freedom fighter, bandit who takes the hills or whatever. But this, if he is proclaiming himself the Jewish Messiah, that is an explicitly political claim, isn't it? It's not just a kind of theological supernatural claim. We go back to the strangeness of, that, of this idea of the kingdom of God, that, that he is situating the kingdom of God beyond the dimensions of, as he sees it, earthly kingdom so you know he goes to the temple and in the synoptic accounts it's after that that he's brought this question by the pharisees who are trying to trip him up should we pay taxes to caesar yeah and he asks for a coin and he can do this because in galilee there are no roman coins but in judea there are and he's shown that the, the coin and he says whose head is that and the, the pharisee replies caesar and so he famously replies render unto caesar what is caesar's and render unto god what is god and this is it's a brilliant riposte, but it's also an acorn from which a mighty oak will grow. It's it, and that oak is, you know, is the secular tradition that we inhabit. I was about to say that oak is your book, Dominion, Tom. Pretty it? much, pretty much, and and this is a kind of, you know, this is an incredibly radical, subversive, and yet poetic teaching. It's not the teaching of of a revolutionary. It's not the teacher of someone who is raising the sword against the Romans or anything like that. Right. But it is the teaching of someone whose concept of a kingdom that transcends earthly power will have this stupefying, I mean, kind of an impact so profound that it's almost impossible to measure. Its impact has been so overwhelming that we don't even recognise it for what it is. And this is where it begins. To play the sceptic again, though, Tom, is it not possible that 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 is a detail inserted later on precisely because the early Christians want this creed to thrive in the Roman world. So they put in this detail, which is unthreatening, ostentatiously unthreatening to Roman political order. 
I mean, that is that is one perspective that you could bring, but I think that that is reflective of someone who's been steeped in the study of 20th century political propaganda or the way that things are marketed. <laughs> right. Because why would Christians be risking their lives to preach something that they were simultaneously faking? And the right. other thing is that that formulation, render unto Caesar, I mean, it's brilliant and it's subversive. Yeah. Who would make it up? I mean, who would come up with that if not someone who was a brilliant preacher and had a very, very weird understanding in the context of the age yeah. of what power was? And it seems likely to me that that person was Jesus because that's what the Gospels are claiming and that's what the evidence of, of how he comes to be reverenced by his followers after his death is pointing yeah. to, rather than that it's some you know, slimy uh, <laughs> PR guy trying right. to right. trying to market his new, you know, this new cult to gullible Romans. The Peter Mandelson of the... <laughs> the Peter uh... Man yeah, I mean, that seems a very, very 21st century perspective okay. that does not, I think, correspond to the evidence. Oh, I've shamed, I've let myself down. I've let you down. I've let the <laughs> yeah, podcast you down. You've let God down. I have done. Right, and on that note, I think we should take a break while I try to recover my... Okay, so I, I very much, I, that's a good section and a good argument and give you a sense, of course, where, where Tom Holland is at with this stuff. So in the second half, they have a fair amount about the resurrection. And again, I, I very much recommend, I, I recommend that you join the, the Rest is History Club for all of the good stuff that comes down. But you don't have to do that. You can listen to it for free with the ads on the Rest is History and podcast. And as I noted, it's it's also on YouTube, so you can do it there. So there's some there's a, a good section about the resurrection. Because if you go right up to the point where he's crucified, nothing about that story is, is, is actually that strange or implausible, is it? Because as we've said, there are other holy men, there are other preachers, miracle workers, healers, and so on. And it's, as you described in the very first episode, there was that fellow in Gaul, who Vitellius executed. So right up to that point, nothing about the story of Jesus of Nazareth is necessarily implausible, unusual. You know, he's just he's well, a remarkable character with remarkable teachings. Well, it's all the kind of chucking de demons into pigs. And yeah, but presumably, if stories had been written about other miracle workers, they would have also had dealings with pigs and, and whatever. Yes. But what is unusual, his followers affirm very vigorously that he was resurrected, that he ascended into heaven, and that they spread across the Eastern Mediterranean with this story, and that it catches on. That is what yeah. elevates it. Well, he almost he almost had the last bit of the Apostles' Creed in there, resurrected, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Ancient people would have understood what that meant. We don't, because we don't imagine heaven N.T. Wright likes to say, heaven is the control room of earth. Um, and sitting at the right hand of God the Father meant that they pray to him, they honor him, they have a living relationship with him. That's what it means to be inside the faith and to live out the faith perspectively, procedurally, um, and, and, and in terms of participation, as well as obviously the propositional isn't it? It's the resurrection and what follows. Yeah, but, but, but the resurrection in itself, I think, is insufficient to explain it. Even if you're seeing a risen, you know, there is no other story is, is, is told of a, a Judean rising from the dead. So, so that in itself is kind of weird and distinctive. But even so, it's, it would be insufficient, I think, because there are quite a lot of stories of people rising from the dead. 
Okay. So, so in and of itself, I mean, you know, it's obviously it's a very weird, exceptional thing to happen, but it's not wholly unheard of. I mean, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, according to the Gospels. So I think it's three things. I think it, uh, undoubtedly the resurrection or people believing in the resurrection is a crucial part of it. I think the drama of his death, which in some way Jesus seems to have embraced, he seems to have knowingly gone to his death, and the way in which it is possible for the disciples and the apostles and his followers to frame it yeah. and to, to see it as the expression of prophecies that are in Ju- Judean scripture that had never be, been previously be, been understood in that light, that actually God will manifest himself through humiliation and death. I mean, that's the kind of the blinding insight that Paul, for instance, clearly has. It's something that is, he sees, he recognizes as having always been there in Judean scripture and Jesus's death has has kind of made it manifest. But neither of those things I, I think would happen had Jesus himself not been the most remarkable teacher. Because I think it's the stickability of his sayings, of his teachings. So Nietzsche brilliantly described Jesus as having had a flair for language that today would see him sent to Siberia. Right. It's the fact that 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 Jesus is preaching something very odd, unsettling, disturbing, and yet attractive to his listeners, and that he preaches it in a way that sticks in the mind. You don't have to be that everything in the Gospels is literally the word. Jesus is literally gospel. I think to accept that this kind of body of sayings is so consistent, it's so coherent, it's so distinctive that it's very hard to explain where they would have come from if not from a a remarkable figure. And Christians see Jesus obviously as having been a remarkable figure. And And, and Tom Holland makes uh, makes the point in, in a number of his places that not, not only is that true, that stickability of what Jesus says, not only is that true of the audience 2,000 years ago, it continues to be true today. And again, the fact that four different writers capture this, and they all write within, you know, not that many years of each other, says, says something that this all must come from him. Jesus, Jesus started this. So... The fact that Jesus was a remarkable figure and that this is what prompted Christians to write about him seems to me the likeliest explanation for it. That's a hunch derived from my reading of the the material. There are, of of course, a whole range of other explanations that, that would be possible. And so to an extent, that is my formulation of a position that ultimately I'm agnostic about. So just on other explanations... Um, your explanation focuses very much on the personality of Jesus. Is there another explanation which would be focused more on the context, which would be there is a, not on supply, as it were, but on demand, that there is a particular context in the first century AD in which people are crave for whatever reason, I don't know, economic, political, people are craving this, and so they almost create it. Is that plausible? I don't think so. Because this isn't a particularly troubled or difficult period for people in the Eastern Mediterranean? Not particularly, no. The idea that uh, Palestine was heaving with kind of revolutionary instincts is is one that's been very popular, but I think is not true. Right. We did two episodes on the Judean revolt. I think it was basically, it was a kind of accident. It was it, yeah. it was contingency that prompted it. And so then we read back to it. But, you know, as I say, right at the beginning, 
there are people who are making, you know, Raymond rule is pretty brutal. Uh, like conditions are pretty tough. There are people who are claiming divine sanction for claims for a kingship. But I think, you know, none of the others inspired what Jesus inspired. So there's something about Jesus. That's why you're basically, there is something special. I mean, I think that you could, and indeed I have, <laughs> ex explain, explain the 2000 years of Western, you know, of history as attempts to answer who Jesus was. Yeah. Christians have done it and, and post-Christians have done it. it. You know, it's the question of who he was. And by that, I mean more than, you know, was he a real person? But was he, you know, what, what, what exactly was he? I think this is not a back-projected strangeness. I think the right. strangeness was hardwired into him. And you don't have to be a Christian to accept that because Nietzsche said that. You know, Nietzsche said Jesus is the strangest person who ever lived. You mentioned Occam's razor before. I mean, if you're using Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is that Jesus was the son of God. I mean, uh, historians would make... Well, do historians make that claim? Do other historians who would end their book by saying... No, they don't because... You know, Stephen Jay Gould said that there are rival magisteria, the magisteria of science. Because of the frame of modernist history, because of the fork of the retcon. So, well, you can't put that in that box because that is the shape of that box. And that's where you get these um, um, Stephen Jay Gould's comment about non-overlapping magisteria. And of religion. And I guess historians would capture it in similar terms that, you know, that history and religion are rival magisteria. Basically, you know, so, so Gibbon um, in the, uh, back in the 18th century, you know, he, he, he articulated this very well. He said, the theologian may indulge the pleasing task of describing religion as she descended from heaven, arrayed in her native purity. A more melancholy duty is imposed on the historian. I mean, I think that historians do not accept supernatural explanations. They may yeah. be Christian. I mean, there's nothing to stop a, 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 a historian being a Christian or believing in the supernatural. But I think when they come to write history, by and large, they don't adduce supernatural explanations. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think that you need supernatural explanations to explain Jesus and the emergence of Christianity. But having said that, you know, I think there are lots of reasons why one might choose not to to believe in God and specifically perhaps not believe in the, the Christian understanding of God. But I would say that the inadequacy of the New Testament as source would not be one of them that I would adduce. So I've come to this from studying both the origins of Islam and from studying classical sources. And the, the closer I, up I get to them, the, the more, you know, I've got, I'm pretty impressed by <laughs> actually how much evidence there is for Jesus. Okay. Well, uh, Tom, we've been talking for a long time. So now I don't, I don't ask scientists in the lab to this non-overlapping magisteria. This this is something we're going to dig into more. And I mentioned, I mentioned again back to the image here. I don't expect scientists in the laboratory to uh, say that they can make hydrogen and oxygen out of water because uh, Jesus does it. There's another way of saying that, which is perfectly legitimate, that Jesus does it. But so I'm not going to lean too hard on the historians. That's modernist history. But when it comes to as a pastor working with people, they need soil on the granite 
because their life isn't an idea or a theory. Their life is something that has to be lived. So we'll 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 do we'll do more on this. And again, um, we'll get into we'll get into the the genealogy, not the genetics, the genealogy of Adam and Eve, and we'll talk about that with respect to these questions of history and um, and and the split, this fork, this retconning of history and just about everything else by modernity. So that's it for now. I don't know how long this video is. It's probably under two hours, so that's not too bad. But thanks for watching. Let me know what you think. Um, subscribe to the Rest is History Club if if you really enjoyed this. Uh, if you just if this was just a teaser and you want to hear more, you can listen to the Rest is History free either on YouTube or on podcasts. And um, have a merry Christmas. <laughs>